Welcome to the Like Phil podcast. This is John Faithful Hamer. Today we're going to be talking with sociologist Amy Kaler about intersectionality. This is a term that's been very hot in the last couple of years for proponents and detractors saying it's this important thing. So I was very happy to find out that Amy Kaler is sort of an expert on this topic and is actually uh, teaching a graduate course in the fall this semester where um, a section of the seminar is going to be on intersectionality. And so she's up to date on all the literature on this. So the conversation, as you'll see, sort of centers on a few different questions. First of all, what is intersectionality? Because it seems like there's a, it's a hotly contested concept. People have different definitions of it and then sort of what um, are the what is the usefulness of it what problems does it solve um, what perhaps problems might it create as well uh, and then also something that is more profound I hope which is about the nature of language which is what actually is the meaning of a word or concept is it is it what the so very sophisticated theoreticians say it is, or is it how people actually use the word? And that definitely comes into play when you're talking about intersectionality at all, um, as well. Uh, very, very interesting conversation. Um, I had a good time with it. I hope you do too. Before we get to that, just some housekeeping issues. Uh, to support the podcast, we need your support. If you think long-form discussions... Uh, about relevant issues that are done in a very charitable, civil way where people aren't engaging in gotcha journalism or trying to, uh, to destroy each other or make fun of each other or anything like that. If you think that kind of civil conversation is a worthwhile thing to have in the world and on the Internet, then you should support it. There's a number of ways to do so if you are financially able to support it please do. You can do that by becoming a Patreon supporter of the podcast. Just go to patreon.com and look up Likeville. Uh, if you aren't in a position to do that, there's other ways that you can support us. You can like us on iTunes. You can leave a review of the podcast. Every time you leave a review of the podcast, it increases the likelihood that other people will hear about the podcast because the the more likes we get, the more reviews we get, the more they put that to the forefront. All right, that's how the, the algorithms work. So you can like us on those things, share the podcast. Uh, you can also join our Facebook group. If you just put in Likeville, it'll take you right to the Facebook group. You can follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at the Likeville pod. And these are good things to do because we often put out information about upcoming podcasts, guests. We keep you up to date on you know, who's going to be coming on. And also, it's a way that you can ask questions because very often we get questions from our listeners. And then we make sure to ask the guests those questions. Um, so that's uh, other ways you can. Our podcast is brought to you by our Patreon supporters. It's also brought to you increasingly by our uh, our supporters, our advertisers. So uh, I'll tell you a little bit about those. Uh, this episode is brought to you by 
Seb Furtado Photography. Uh, Sebastian Furtado is a professional photographer. He does this for a living, but he's also a very talented teacher. And of course, as a, a prof, I know that those things do not always go together. Sometimes people are very good at doing something, but they are terrible at teaching it. Uh, Sebastian has both skills. He's very, very good at doing photography, but he's also extremely good at teaching photography. So he will teach you either online or actually, if you happen to be in the Montreal area, you can even get uh, one-on-one teaching, but he'll teach you how to take good pictures, how to use your camera. He'll teach you how to edit your pictures in various softwares that are available. So it's a, and I've seen firsthand uh, people that have taken his classes and really, really advance in the quality of their photographs rapidly. Right. Just to compare it, I have two, two of my siblings took photography programs, uh, professional photography programs, and at Dawson and at, at Concordia here in Montreal. And I saw that they definitely got better, um, but it was, you know, it was over time. It was over a long period of time. With Sebastian, it's unbelievable. People get much, much better within just you know a few weeks it's it's crazy so highly recommended are the episodes also brought to you by good mix foods fantastic stuff i actually just had this morning the the original blend blend 11 uh it's i usually have it just in the morning with yogurt it's kind of sort of seeds and nuts and dried fruits it's totally vegan totally uh, paleo very, very good for you. Very virtuous. Uh, but I've had some listeners who've bought a good mix and they tell me that they've made it into balls. It's like these, I've never done it before, but apparently it's very delicious. Uh, you can also make them into your own kind of homemade granola bars. There's people put them in shakes. They put them in smoothies. I would never do these things, but apparently it's very, very delicious. Uh, it's a fantastic stuff. Um, Very, very good for your digestion. Um, Fills you for very, very long times if you're trying to, uh, as I often am, if you're trying to lose weight and cut down on your appetite. It's a very natural appetite suppressant. Fantastic stuff. So, And Good Mix, you can find them uh, for sale on Amazon.com for our American listeners. If you're in Canada, it's not on Amazon.com ca yet but you can still buy it online and they'll they'll ship it to you uh, this uh, podcast is also brought to you by elsa's bar it's a fantastic bar in montreal's plateau montreal neighborhood if you're from montreal you know what a fantastic place elsa's is it's a very wonderful atmosphere it's voted again and again as the best bar in montreal wonderful atmosphere really 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 great place if you're visiting montreal definitely check out elsa's elsa's is a place where the locals go it's a little bit off the beaten track not a lot just a few blocks so the main one of the main bar districts where people go out to party and stuff like that is on boulevard sanara and it's a couple of blocks over from sanara Uh, but it's a kind of place where locals go you don't see all the uh, 
drunk American teenagers from Boston and Elsa's. You see mainly locals. It's a wonderful place. Um, if you go to Elsa's, make sure to tell them that we that we sent you, the Likeful Podcast sent you. For Good Mix, when you're ordering it, uh, you can get a discount for being a listener of Likeville. Just it, enter the coupon code Likeville15. Is that correct, Sebastian? Like, yeah, Likeville15, and you'll get 15% off of your purchase. It's um, quite a bit, quite a bit off. You'll, you'll appreciate it, trust me. The episode is also brought to you by Café Lali, uh, Carré des Artistes Yaridar. This is a family-owned fine art gallery slash cafe. It's sort of a symbiotic relationship. It's like you're having coffee, delicious coffee in the middle of an art gallery. It's in St. Henry, which is one of the up-and-coming neighborhoods in Montreal. It's kind of where, where all the hipsters have migrated to, or at least a lot of them. It's a wonderful neighborhood. It's not far from the Lachine Canal and the Atwater Market. Uh, definitely check it out if you're in the area. All right, without further ado, I give you a conversation with Professor Amy Kaler. Welcome to the Like Phil podcast. This is John Faithful Hamer. Uh, today we're going to be talking with Amy Kaler, a professor of sociology at the University of Alberta. And we're going to be talking about intersectionality, which is a hot topic at the moment, has been for quite some time. Um, I think it's a fascinating topic intrinsically to help us think about what's going on at the moment. Um, but I think it's also, and this only occurred to me this morning, actually, but I think intersectionality is fascinating uh, because it also, as I was saying to Sebastian earlier on, I think it can provide a window or sort of a wormhole into thinking about much, much larger issues about uh, language itself and convention and grammar and prescriptivism and descriptivism and all sorts of things. It's, it, it actually can open up and explain a great deal. Uh, if I understand correctly, you're teaching a graduate seminar on intersectionality in, the, in this semester? Uh, not quite. I'm teaching a graduate seminar on sociology of gender and family. And one of our components, one of our weeks is kind of what is intersectionality and how have how are scholars kind of deploying it in their work? And that's in response to student interest. You know, they wanted, they want time to think about and talk about this. So when we were in touch earlier, I was literally just putting the articles, the readings onto the syllabus for these students in the fall, which is why it was kind of top of mind. Okay, so maybe just um, to start off, we can, we can kind of establish what we really mean by intersectionality, because it clearly... It uh, means a bunch of different things to different people. So what do you think, <laughs> uh, what does intersectionality mean and what, what problems does this concept solve? Okay. Um, it's, it, it, for me, intersectionality is one of these things. It's, it's simple, but it's not easy. Um, and the best definition I can give you, and I'm, I'm, it's not me, I'm, I'm misquoting Gaitri Spivak with this, is intersectionality is the recognition that nothing is just one thing. You know, everything uh, in the social world, at least, maybe in the natural world, you can have, you know, here's a nugget of pure uranium or here is a, a, I don't know, a piece of limestone that is nothing but limestone. But in the social world that we inhabit, um, 
everything is inflected. Everything is, everyone is always many multiple things at once. So yeah, n- n- uh, nothing is just one thing. Okay. Well, I know it, originally it came out of uh, a specific problem, which was, if I remember the, the homework you gave me to read, it came, they were looking at, I think it was General Motors and their hiring practices. And so they wanted to say that they were hiring practically no uh, black women. And right. so General Motors, their lawyers said, well, um, there's no requirement for sort of diversity and things like that that says we need to hire black women. It says we need to hire a certain number of women and a certain number of African-Americans. And so they showed that, in fact, they had hired lots of African-Americans. They were African-American men who were working on the shop floor and making the cars and stuff like that. And they showed that they had hired lots of women because they had lots of white women working in their administrative kind of branch, right, doing secretarial work and office jobs. And so, um, the argument was, well, clearly we, if we want to talk about inequality and we want to talk about trying to create a more uh, just and equal society, that we have to think uh, in terms that are more complicated than just uh, race, uh, gender, class, and things like that, that we have to talk about like how these things intersect because trying to get more jobs for black women by talking in terms of race and gender, they can very easily slip through the cracks. If I understood, that's how it started, right? That, um, yeah, that was the example that um, Kimberly Crenshaw, who's a legal scholar, used in her, her 1989 article, which is where, uh, where people often sort of trace the, the genealogy of the word to. Um, and yeah, she was looking at this, this case, and what she was seeing was that um, the employer was treating African-Americans as purely and only African-Americans. You know, the fact that they were all African-American men who were being hired was not registering because the whole point is we're supposed to hire people of color and there's a whole pile of people of color. And the same thing with hiring women. They were treating the women they hired as purely and only uh, just some sort of generic women and not attending to the reality that these were white women. So, you know, we're supposed to be hiring women and we've hired a whole bunch of women and we've hired a whole bunch of black people. So what's your problem? Um, And the, well, the problem is that, uh, you know, nothing is ever just one thing. Um, The black people that are hired are black men, black women, you know, of different genders. The women that are hired may be, you know, different racialized categories. And if you ignore those other dimensions and just look at this one variable that you want to isolate, um, it's not a great way of making the world a better place, put it that way. The origins, though, the idea of intersectionality actually goes way back before that. Um, it was because Crenshaw's a legal scholar and very academic. That's kind of how it got into the world of abstract academics. But it, um, my understanding is that it goes back um, in... Uh, sort of African-American theorizing about race and, and black feminist theorizing about race and gender, you could trace it back um, in the U.S. to some of the um, the abolitionist work being done by people like, uh, you've probably heard of Sojourner Truth and the, you know, her, her famous Ain't I Woman speech um, to, a, you know, a convention of white women in which she's saying essentially, we you know, Nobody is just one thing. I'm a woman like you, but I'm also, you know, I've also been treated as a, a tool or an instrument to make money. I've also had 
these other things that have been attached to um, who I am as a black woman. So I think of that as kind of the first um, really well-known utterance of what we come to think of as intersectionality. Um, in the 60s and 70s, and this was how I kind of came to the concept, um, I was, it sounds like a digression, but it's not as, as digressive as it might appear. Um, I was, um, as an undergrad at McGill, um, this was in the 80s, so it's a conservative time. It's Reagan, Mulroney, Thatcher. Um, this is when you were in school with David Schultz? Then? This is when I was in school <laughs> okay, with David yeah. Schultz. Yeah, he was, he was yeah. a few years ahead of me, but yeah, yeah. it's where I know David okay. Schultz from. Um, yeah, I was really interested in, in radical challenges to the political order because it seemed like there weren't too many. So I, I started reading all about um, the Black Panther Party and those uh, movements of the late 60s, early 70s. And that led me to, um, I, you know, that the Black Panthers were interesting and they could really write, you know, so it wasn't like reading boring political theory. Um, but that led me to people like Angela Davis, um, who was associated with that movement and who articulated a similar, um, along with other women, a similar critique from within that the, the struggle for black liberation um, must also be gendered. You know, black, black women are not black men. You know, we have different interests and we have to grapple with this within our movement even as we are grappling with uh, oppression on uh, on the basis of race from outside now when you have stokely carmichael saying the only yeah. the only place for a yeah. woman within the movement is prone or like yeah things like that yeah yeah <laughs> yeah. yeah and there was yeah. A, um yeah um angela davis wrote a, a book called uh, women race and class that i read in the early 80s that was really influential um on me um and she was looking at challenges to the the whiteness of mainstream feminist movements from um from or by or through african-american women or other women of color who um said we are not simply an only women we are not simply an only people of color we are all at once and you too are all at once you know white women are not some sort of universal woman you are racialized as well, although you may not uh, recognize it explicitly. And so that those ideas had been kind of in my mind for a long time um, before the last few years, which is when it seems like everybody knows about it and talks about it. But really, it's been the idea has been around and has been argued and debated and put into practice and messed around with for decades. Yeah. Well, I think it's William Julius Wilson, the in his book, The Truly Disadvantaged and a couple of other things that he's written. Um, he he's argued that one of the real benefits of intersectionality is that it helps to sort of uh, get more specifically at the problem. If you're trying to correct for biases and prejudices in society and the fact that some people have you know, the deck stacked against them from day one and you want to try and create a more egalitarian society then you want to help those people but he said unfortunately because our categories are so broad um, he said he says for instance and he this is as a, an african-american scholar he says um, saying that you want to have a more diverse campus at harvard and saying that we want to make sure we have more black students well if 
all you do is say we want to have more black students, affirmative action programs like that have basically been uh, a, an incredible gift to the black upper middle class that has existed for a long time and even existed during uh, Jim Crow days and everything. There's There's been doctors and lawyers, and so they benefited a great deal from those kinds of things, whereas the what he calls like the truly disadvantaged people who are living in urban ghettos or in rural poverty, they're not benefiting at all from these kinds of uh, attempts. And he says, likewise, if you just think in terms of broad categories of we want to have more women on the faculty and you only think in terms of that, well, all policies like that have disproportionately benefited rich and upper middle class white women. So and they've uh, so you can say you're diversifying and you're when in fact all you're doing is allowing people who are already um, like in the top one percent, you know, have an, yet another advantage. So his what his argument for intersectionality was that it allows you to more specifically target people who are truly disadvantaged rather than um, making the categories is that sort of what do you think about that as a it's yeah it, it um william julius wilson's lens is economic inequality like he's looking at poverty and he's saying um and I, you know i think he's not wrong that programs that are intended to enhance upward mobility like you know, in the U.S., what school you go to is a big determinant of your life chances, you know, the jobs that you get and so on. Um, if that is your goal to kind of open up upward mobility, upward economic mobility to a whole lot of people, but you're not selecting on that basis, you're assuming that African-American equals poor and kind of using it as a proxy, you're not going to achieve what you're setting out to achieve. So, for those purposes, you're looking at um, has affirmative action opened up roads to upward mobility for a whole lot of people who uh, are on the you know have been uh, on the low side of income inequality. The um, answer may be no, it wasn't. You know, it's not working as we hoped it would um, because it's not. You know, if we're if race is being treated as the most salient variable. Maybe it isn't for these purposes. You know, for other purposes, like people who study, um, like sociologist called Philomena Ased, who's, um, I believe, from the Netherlands, who's done a lot of work on everyday racism and just kind of like repeated encounters that people of color experience that are, um, that grind them down, you know, that are, are um, disempowering and depressing. And that... Um, that's something that she finds your upper middle class, your middle class, you're poor. Um, if you're a black or brown person in a country where power is held by whites, you, you know, that's going to affect you. So when you're looking at one thing, um, economic status or level may be the most important thing to look at. When you're looking at something else, economic status or level doesn't seem to affect people's experiences of um, I mean, it would shape the form that everyday racism takes in your life, but it doesn't shape the fact that you are, do experience it. Yeah. Well, it, one of the things I, in an interview with, it was William Julius Wilson and Cornell West, and I remember they were talking about intersectionality, and they said that um, at its best, it would correct for the, for the fact that most diverse, diversity initiatives 
uh, I can't remember which one of them likened it. They likened it to trickle-down economics. They said, um, you're saying that we want to help people that are truly disadvantaged. And so you have this like broad category and say, we want to, um, and because usually class is left right out of it. Um, so you end up having what they call like a Benetton ad diversity, where it's like it's diversity in, in a very superficial way. But in fact, you find out all of them went to private schools and had you know a lot of. And so you're really just giving people who already have a huge amount of advantages, more advantages. And so they said, if you want to actually if your goal is to try and level the playing field, um, there are more intelligent ways to do it in the same way that trickle down economics is a fabulously inefficient way to help the problems of the poor. Uh, that very broad diversity initiatives that aren't more targeted are going to end up uh, not really helping the people that you that you want to help, right? So, yeah, yeah. Um, I'm glad you brought up the you know the the famous Spenetton ad because that's kind of what I have in my mind when I, um, if I'm especially if I'm talking to undergrads about the difference between diversity and intersectionality. You know, the the Benetton ad. Um, for people who haven't seen it, it's, I don't know if it's still like out there in the media, but all different like colors and shapes and sizes of young people in Benetton clothes. Um, and they, they all, they have in common is they're all really good looking. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, but it's. United Colors of Benetton. United yeah. Colors of Benetton. Yeah. 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 And it's, I mean, I'd rather see a. United Colors of Benetton ad than an ad with, you know, 35 really incredibly good-looking young white people. So, okay, that's a good thing. But it's diverse, but, and this is putting too much on an ad. You can't ask an ad to delve into, like, what are the consequences or what is contingent on certain forms of categorization and certain forms of difference. But the Benetton ad shows you what diversity looks like. It's an intersectionality or intersectional analysis or intersectional understanding is a lot more complex than we need people who look different and speak different languages to all be in the same room together. Yeah. Well, there's there's certain instances where it seems to me that it is just totally obvious that uh, diversity is a very important thing. So let's say uh, a couple things that would spring to mind immediately would be uh, police force. Right. If you're if you're in law enforcement and if you're policing a particular um, community, if you if the police force to some extent mirrors the uh, the sort of the racial and ethnic and linguistic uh, patterns of the people that they're policing, it's going to make it much easier for them to actually do their job. They're going to have much more legitimacy. They're going to have probably less problems, more connection with the community. And that's why you know, I, I teach at John Abbott College, and we have the biggest police tech program in Quebec. And a lot of my former students are now uh, cops or in the RCMP or in various things like that. And it's very clear that when I've had students who, let's say, speak not only English and French really well, but also Arabic or Spanish or, uh, you know, whatever, some other language, they're immediately told in the program, you're going to get hired immediately. Like they're going to snap you up 
immediately. And that's just understood because we need more people that speak these languages. And a while ago, the Montreal police decided they wanted to, they made a goal they wanted to be 50% um, female by a certain year. And so for a little while, they just hired uh, almost nothing but women for a little while. And their argument to me, I mean, there are people who grumbled about it, but their argument was completely, to me, irrefutable. It was like, we can do our job better if we mirror the community better. We'll have more legitimacy. That makes sense to me. Uh, it also makes sense to me that if you're trying to govern a huge country like Canada, and if uh, Justin Trudeau says, I want half my cabinet to be women, uh, that makes perfect sense to me. And I know uh, Jonathan Kay uh, wrote a thing saying this is so bad and you should just go on merit. But in fact, if you go all the way back to Confederation, we've never gone on just merit. Uh, in fact, prime ministers have always tried to make sure that each region is represented because if your entire cabinet is all people from PEI, then people are going to start saying, why should I stay in this Canada thing? I'm clearly not having my interests. Like So uh, it, once again, like a police force, you're going to have more legitimacy if you more mirror the, the community that you're serving or you're representing or governing. I get that. But there's other situations, and I think in academia, often we're in that other situation where uh, it's not so important. So if we're trying to, I don't know, if we find out there's an asteroid that's going to hit Earth uh, in 2022, and we have to go to Mars somehow, and so we need to put together a crack team of scientists and 200 scientists that are going to get us to Mars. Like, uh, I want the 200 best people. And if those 200 best people end up being 175 of them are women, fine, right? If half of them are Jews and the other half are, are like Asians, like East Asians, great. I just want to get to Mars and not die. Like in that situation, I don't think diversity is like a, a paramount good, right? So, I mean, what do, you, what do you think about those things? I think in that situation, a kind of statistical uh, represent of different population groups may not be the most important thing for the purposes of the mission. Um, if the mission consists somehow of only white North American men, there's a problem in there somewhere because it's, it's hard for me to believe that merit could be so uh, intensely concentrated in that one group of people. Um, so I think, yeah, Representational diversity is not always the most important thing in the world, but it is. There are very few cases like a mission to Mars where people are going to be in a spaceship for months and, um, you know, so that they can carry out some complex scientific endeavor. That's. There are very few things in life that are like that. You know, most are more embedded in ongoing processes and dynamics of life on earth most are a lot more complex so as a sort of hypothetical case yeah it's probably not really important there um but that's not almost it's a really literally it's a really special case it is literally not a real world case yeah, yeah. no that's that's a good point because i know uh, this is an argument i've had with with a number of my friends about um you know affirmative action problems and they're like well you know it's not fair that that this person you know, gets the job over that and everything. And I, my response is, I've been on, you probably have too, I've been on many, many hiring committees. 
and I know that, and you know this, I'm sure that when you have like 200 applicants for for a position, you end up with you know 20 applicants mm-hmm. that are amazing. Mm-hmm. Like they're all roughly equal. There's rarely one person that's head and shoulders above everybody else. There's like 20 people that are amazing who mm-hmm. would be equally great. So at that point, if you want to have a more diverse faculty and you say, you know what, why don't we give it to like this, this Mohawk woman? Cause we have like, you know, we're how far from Kahnawake and we have absolutely nobody who's like first nations here. So why don't we give it now? Somebody can look after that and say, mm-hmm. oh, she just got that because, you know, she, but that's not true. No. She was, we just decided to have that be a deciding factor. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like that's, well, it's people make these statements as though they were empirical truths when they aren't. Like, um, you know, with Trudeau's cabinet, well, he those people just got positions because they're women, they're not qualified. And I think the best response to that is, okay, which woman, which one of the ministers is unqualified? You know, how is she unqualified? And how do you know that despite her unqualification, she was given the job because they needed a woman. And no one can ever empirically substantiate this. It's one of these things um, that we call bro science, you know. Um, <laughs> like all the, you know, my, heard it from my bro says, well, you know, they're all, they, they just get a job. Okay, I'll hang on for a moment. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. <laughs> oh, I'm totally using that. Um, well, everybody knows it's just affirmative action hire. They're not qualified. They're not excellent. They're not meritorious. And I'm thinking, you know, unless you can prove, can you demonstrate that that person has no merit? If you can't demonstrate it, then don't make ridiculous assumptions. Um, and my experience is similar to yours, that in a lot of cases, it's I have never been in a situation where someone said, oh, let's hire this obvious disaster because we need someone from group x you know it's um it that does not happen in in my experience you know hiring processes and so forth may be flawed in lots of ways and filters may be applied when we don't realize that we're applying them um and so on and so forth but this particular like hypothesized they're giving the jobs to all the colored people and the women. That, in my experience, just is not one of the ways in which we screw up hiring. <laughs> no. Yeah, I mean, I've I've heard many stories about this, and I've I've looked into quite a few of them. The only times that I've heard that were verified that there was actual kind of discrimination was uh, when it was basically nepotism, where you had yeah. like a family member and they they rigged the game to make sure that you know his son gets the job or his nephew gets the job and i've heard of that and then of course in the united states you have legacies yeah right people who get into harvard or yale because mommy and daddy went there or and grandpa went there and they they have and they literally Mm -hmm. lower the bar for them i mean there's a friend of mine was teaching at princeton and he had like i didn't know you know like a mars bar okay right yeah (laughs) the chocolate bar yeah it's it's named after an actual people with their last name is mars okay yeah (laughs) who knew yeah Uh, but anyway so he had this like somebody in his class who was like something mars yeah and so the guy was like it did not 
absolutely did not belong in Ivy League University, yeah, yeah. but got in there because of money and connections and stuff yeah. like that. So there's there's various ways in which people rig the game yeah. uh, to get into a, a job or get into a, a great university. Yeah. Nobody seems to talk about those. They only talk about uh, <laughs> like yeah. a certain kind yeah. of perceived rigging. So that's, yeah. that's very true. Um, there's in Jonathan Haidt's new book, which is coming out um, in on September 7th, uh, the two of the coddling of the American mind. And I just interviewed him recently. And he has a whole section in the book on intersectionality. And he said some rather inflammatory things in other interviews. Uh, I know you saw one of the where he said that intersectionality is basically just a kind of racism. And um, so f as part of the book, he really, really went and did all his homework. He researched it. He went and interviewed. Uh, he, he talked to Kimberly Crenshaw, interviewed her and all these things. And he brings up this very interesting issue, which I wanted to talk to you about. He says, uh, well, actually, now that I've really looked into what intersectionality, he goes, in theory, it makes a lot of sense. And I can see how this is a useful analytical tool. I can see how this is, uh, it, this is like, in many ways, like a very good yeah. thing. However, he said, the problem is that the way it's actually used mm -hmm. and is, is for the most part not the way the theoreticians who people like you sort of sophisticated like sociologists who can think or legal theorists who can think about it at a high level um, that's not the way it's actually being used on the ground that's not the way it's being used in the blogosphere that's not the way it's being used on talk radio that's not and and not just by detractors you know the kind of idiots that would say feminazi or something like that uh, not just by them but also by people who are using it um, in a positive way on in the Twitterverse and things like that, they're using it in a way which um, he argues is doesn't actually bring us together and solve problems. It actually makes things way, way worse and it divides uh, people. And so and he says specifically that if you talk about intersectionality a great deal in university classrooms, it uh, divides students far more than than they already were divided. So, what do you what do you think about that claim? Hmm. Um, I can't speak to his experience in university classrooms. Um, I it does inter hmm. intersectionality is not just slicing and dicing into ever smaller and smaller slivers of the population, which is how it's often caricatured. Like, oh, you know, we can't just talk about women. We have to talk about women of color. And we can't just talk about women of color. We have to talk about cisgendered and non-cisgendered women and, you know, and going, getting into ever smaller and smaller boxes. Um, if that was all it was, then, yeah, it would be basically a tool for atomization. Um, but intersectionality um, can also be deployed as a way of understanding how things are as they are. You know, how is it that as, um, as a man of color for some individuals, things work out really well in these circumstances and not so well in others? How is it that, uh, that something happens while something else doesn't? Um, so using intersectionality is kind of a way not just to stick labels on people with an ever you know increasing assortment of labels and an ever you know diminishing number of people in each label um but also as 
uh, almost as a as a heuristic or something to think with to understand um, the social world. I, that's where it is very useful and where it's not di- divisive. It helps people understand um, what's going on around them. Um, it's, yeah, I think that the urge to categorize and to, it's like a, it's one of these sort of neurological shortcuts I think we have. We, we, as soon as we see something, we want to put it in a category and that, that impulse will always be there and it's not just with respect to intersectionality that we see it. The, the drive towards taxonomy is everywhere, um, but that's not really what intersectionality does at its best. So I, I think I would, I would differ with him. I would say I don't see it as driving atomization and balkanization. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, this is, okay, to give an example, right? When I, I grew up in a part of Montreal, you maybe remember the Verdun, right? Mm-hmm. Well, Verdun, um, it's doing much better now. But when I was growing up there, it was very, very poor. It was, I mean, one third, it was the unemployment rate was about a third yeah. of able-bodied adults were unemployed. Yeah. Everybody was like, just, uh, you know, on welfare, they were, people, there was a lot of like violence, a lot of domestic violence, a lot of bad, it was a bad situation. And so it's in southwest of Montreal. And but there's this little Nuns Island, right, which is just off the coast of Verdun in the St. Lawrence River. And Nuns Island is a part of Verdun. Now, Verdun has since become a part of Montreal, but it used to be a separate city. And Nuns Island, when I was growing up, was the uh, the richest or one of the richest neighborhoods in all of Quebec. It's an incredibly rich neighborhood. So you had this super rich neighborhood that was a part of this very, very poor neighborhood, right, right, Verdun. And this came to a head at the schools because the kids from Nuns Island would be coming to school wearing like incredibly expensive clothes and jewelry and really expensive like shoes. And they'd be driven to uh, Verdun High School in like a BMW or Mercedes Benz and things like that. And there were always fights constantly between kids from Nuns Island and Verdun. So one of the things they decided is they they basically rebranded Verdun High as Argyle Academy. And they said, um, and everybody got uniforms. You had to wear like gray pants, this like light blue shirt and a car, like a sort of a Royal Brew Carnigans at Argyle Academy. And they had strict rules about you were not allowed to wear expensive like watches or jewelry or shoes. And it was amazing. It s- calmed things down so much because now we're all students. Right. In this situation, we're all equal, we're all students. And they basically just pushed that kind of class differentiation aside, right? So as I understand it, Jonathan Haidt's argument is that by constantly you know, reinforcing like differences between people and like saying that, you know, whatever you say is, has more truth points or less truth points because of the, who you are, that you're actually increasing the, um, the divisions where, whereas it might be perhaps, it might be very useful to use the tools of intersectionality when it comes to admissions when you're trying to sort of decide who gets in and who gets uh, money and things like that. It might be very used to use those tools, but once they're in, they should all just be students sitting around Mm -hmm. a seminar table trying to figure out what the truth is. If you're constantly uh, using the tools of intersectionality in the seminar room, Mm -hmm. uh, the argument is that uh, 
this is going to be incredibly corrosive of what the mission of the university is. Mm -hmm. What do you what do you think about that? I'm thinking um, I'm actually thinking of historic depth here. Um, I'm thinking of you know because I'm in Montreal. I'm thinking about you know when I went to McGill and a lot of still some of my best friends in the world I, I met there as well. Um, intersectionality, uh, I don't think it was a word that we used at that point. We were interested in feminism, anti-racism, uh, what we understood then as gay rights, which is now a much larger, more complex concept, anti-colonial stuff. Um, but we, and we were in an institution where nobody was paying even lip service to the kind of thing Jonathan Haidt is talking about. Um, and we didn't have an experience of being unified and all just together here as students looking for the truth. We had an experience where the normative student was presumed to be um, white, middle-class, male, because um, it, it's McGill, English-speaking, and those of us who weren't, I mean, that was what was divisive. We were reminded. Um, and I'm, I can recall a couple of incidents that although it was like, what, 30 ish years ago, it still are pretty vivid. Um, one was, I was an English literature major, and in one class uh, where I was in with a, a friend, um, the professor didn't like my friend, and he was reading like some really kind of sexually explicit and sort of degrading passages. Oh, this from must have been Klein. The prof? Or yeah. The, uh, I don't, I've blanked on the name of the professor. So uh, um, he has, he's famous for doing that kind of stuff. And he was there at the time. Yeah. There were some really lovely human beings. Yeah. <laughs> um, it, it, this was from Henry Miller. And so he was reading this description of a sex worker and he kept, and people listening to this can't see that I'm doing the air quote thing with my fingers. He, he would make a mistake and drop in my friend's name for the name of the female character in the novel and be like looking at her while Ooh, he did classy. that. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it was disturbing. You know, I was not happy about that, but it kind of went without correction, you know, or without comment. Um, I had another friend, and she and I were, we were volunteering for some event with high school students coming to McGill, and her, uh, her last name is a lot longer than mine. It has a whole lot more vowels in it. And when we were, they, when they were calling the volunteers to like, okay, you take these kids over there, you do that. Um, and then switching it up when our assignments switched, the person, another student, who was making the announcements would make a big show of kind of not being able to say my friend's last name and, you know, stumbling over the syllables and laughing. And it was uncomfortable. I mean, I wasn't even there. I was like a white person fading into the background. Well, I was there. I wasn't there in the sense that it was tar I was being targeted, but it still left a mark on me. And, and that's what's divisive, these reminders, and they can be overt or they can be incredibly subtle, that uh, there is a normative entity who should be in the space, and you're not it. So the attention to, um, to different ways of being, um, to racial categorization, to gender identity, to uh, sexual identity, to um, physical ability, is a corrective to that kind of thing. Uh, that kind of stuff that I described is garbage, and I, I hope that it doesn't really happen anymore. Um, I can see that it's possible every correction has a potential overcorrection under some circumstances, and, and that may be happening. 
But if we step back from, you know, cherry picking the instances where, you know, somebody got mad at somebody else for not acknowledging their identity or, or what have you, and look at the big sweep of history and what has actually been divisive and caused people to understand themselves as not belonging, it's not intersectionality. It's all the stuff that you know, I was living through in the 1980s, and I didn't even experience the half of it because I'm a, you know, a white Anglophone female person. Um, mm. So that's my long-winded response. Yeah, well, the um, McGill was actually engaging in a kind of affirmative action to maintain that that standard that you talked about, and that's they had Jewish quotas for a really long time. And because they, it, it's sort of the kind of the inverse of what we now imagine these things to be because they they thought uh, well they didn't think they knew that if it was straight meritocracy Jews would outperform a lot of the wasps and so they had Jewish quotas to make sure there weren't too too many Jews at McGill yeah. and there in many places had things like that yeah. right that they were and this is I mean this is a, a sidebar but this is at a time when uh, Quebec society was very very openly anti-semitic and there were all sorts of you know real kind of pressures and what would now be called microaggressions and you know outright aggressions against Jews the various um, places in the Laurentians had like at Saint Donat had like big signs saying like you know Jews go home Jews not welcome and things like that so even in that environment where uh, Jews were subject to a great deal of like very very real discrimination they were still vastly outperforming mm -hmm. the um the anglo mm -hmm. the majority the anglo uh, mcgill student that was the average so so they were actually rigging the system to make sure there were less right so that's i mean that that's kind of a, a side issue but um in terms of how intersectionality can can affect uh, the student the vibe like on campus i i'm when i was in grad school in the 1990s, I late 1990s, I remember one class I took was um, a graduate seminar. It was like race in the media. Mm -hmm. And it was an amazing seminar in many different ways. Very, very interesting seminar. And, but I was thinking back to it and I was the only man in the, the class in the seminar. And I was the only white person in the seminar. It was like um, the professor was Latina and all the, all the women, all the students in the class, the graduate students class were um, African-American women. And I remember it was it was an amazing class, but I don't remember ever, even for a second, feeling uncomfortable about, and I don't remember anybody saying, oh, well, you know, your point of view on this text is not valid because you're like a straight white man or something like that. Nobody ever said that. And I didn't even, it just didn't, never even came up. The, the attitude was like, we are, uh, right now we're pursuing the truth and we're looking at all these texts of different kinds and we're looking at these really interesting theories that'll help us to make sense of this stuff. And that's what we're doing. We're getting together to do this, this work. And definitely people in the room, it's not as if we were like colorblind or something, definitely like we would bring up experiences which would be rooted in our reality as like men or women, as like racialized in certain ways. And, and I, you know, they would say stories as, as like black women experiences that had happened. So th that definitely, but, but that was just extra information that was helping us to get to the truth. When I talk to my 
uh, former students who are in grad school now, they say it's a complete knife fight. It's like a horrible, it's toxic, you know, in the humanities. They're like, now that could never happen. Like everything you said, people would be like, you know, shut up. You're not allowed to like, everything is sort of like you get more points depending upon like, you know, what, and this is like what, what he's talking about that the, the undid, I mean, I know a lot of your research is into the sort of the unintended consequences of social change, right? And yeah, and like I was, I saw that, I thought that was really interesting. That's like very sort of Weberian and because um, that he's fascinated by that stuff. So I'm wondering very often the it, Max Weber's tragic vision of the world is that very often social changes happen for really good reasons, but there's all these unintended consequences, things that you didn't anticipate. So do you can you see any sort of unintended consequences of trying to situate uh, and maybe I'll be more specific there's a sociologist that um, I mean my wife is a sociologist and I think she does I uh, yeah I'm biased perhaps but like I think she does it really really well in the classroom she navigates it just perfectly but I've seen people navigate it horribly I mean the one of the example that springs to mind immediately um, was a former student of mine who's uh, Muslim and she wears the hijab and stuff like that. She went to McGill and this student, this professor who's trying really hard to be like very kind of, you know, extra progressive uh, would call on students in class mm -hmm. and like, well, as a black woman, what would you say about this as a Muslim woman? And she's like, I don't want to be your Muslim woman. I don't want to be speaking for a Muslim woman. I just want to be a student in this class. She's kind of a shy, introverted person. Uh, she's actually an atheist who just wears this job for make her parents happy and for social. Like, she doesn't want to like be put in this position. And so, uh, and she said, you know, this is like kind of like racism. It's like well-meaning, mm -hmm. but it's you're basically reducing me to my to my category. And I don't want to be, I want you to know me as like a student in your class. And, and she, you know, the, one of the beautiful details she mentioned is she said, you know, it's very telling that this prof uh, never remembers any student's name, right. yeah. which is just totally fits because yeah. this is somebody who just sees people as members of categories, right? right? Yeah. So that's sort of the dark side of this. I mean, what do you, what do you think about that? Um, the thought that's coming to mind is that, um, yeah, if you're, you're constantly sort of hailing one student and, you know, saying, okay, as a Muslim woman, you know, I'm going to put you in this position of essentially bad faith where you're going to be uh, interpolated to speak as the voice of Muslim women, that's bad pedagogy. You know, that's not a great thing to do from, from a lot of points of view. Um, and there's always been bad pedagogy in university classrooms. A, a consciousness of diversity and difference and intersectionality gives bad pedagogy new ways to be bad, you know. <laughs> um, but until, you know, all professors are, until we all are able to think out all our classroom decisions in advance and, and always make the best decision possible, somebody's going to do something that is not a good idea, like this prof who yeah probably does have good intentions but is um you know making life awkward for this oh i, I actually happen to know this prof and she's an incredibly good person yeah who's 
like does not have a mean this is completely well intentioned yeah well and you know you know you know what they say about the road paved with good intentions <laughs> um so i don't see that attention to difference or intersectionality brings into being bad teaching it's it maybe opens a channel through which bad teaching can flow similarly in grad school classrooms um it, jerks are kind of distributed evenly through any way you want to slice or dice humanity mm -hmm. so um if someone is a jerk they may use um identification and identity categories in order to be a jerk you know but th that the problem is not that we are aware that these things exist that um that racialization and gender identity or gender fluidity or a class exists and uh the problem is that somebody is a jerk and they are consciously or not using these things to to do what's you know, annoying grad students have always done and try to dominate conversations or make other people feel stupid or what have you. So I don't see, you, you can't lay this at the feet of Kimberly Crenshaw, <laughs> is what I'm saying. Yeah, no, I, I, I see your point. I guess the the deeper issue, and it's it's hard to kind of get to this. I mean, I think uh, you know, Jonathan Hyde makes a good stab at it is, I guess I think about it this way, right? I grew up in this working class neighborhood in Verdun and there was all these like old communists and socialists in the neighborhood, really colorful characters like David Fenario. I don't know if you oh, remember yeah, him. The yeah, playwright, yeah. Gonville and stuff like yeah. that. I grew up with him. Yeah. I idealized him when yeah. I was a kid. He yeah. lived a few blocks away from me. Yeah. Anyway, he was like larger than life character yeah. in my neighborhood. And, but you know, they would like get, you know, they'd be like drinking and stuff and they would be getting louder and louder and louder. And they'd, you know, pound their fists on the table and they'd say, we've never really tried communism. We never really. And they would basically just discount yeah. all of the horrible, like things that have, that happened in China, yeah. that happened in the Soviet Union, everywhere else they would say, well, that wasn't real communism right yeah. and i've heard the same thing from libertarians like you say well we've tried that and they're like that wasn't real libertarianism yeah. and then i've heard this from christians if you try and say well look at all the evil things that have happened in the name of christianity well that wasn't real christianity yeah. and and it, muslims do the same thing everybody does this so um i'm wondering to what extent like is it fair to say well that wasn't real intersectionality like i mean at a certain point like uh, Sebastian and I were talking about this before. Like, uh, who gets to decide how to spell the word color in English? Like, who gets to decide that it has a U or not? It's not written in the stars that it has to have a U or not. It's purely conventional. It's just words mean whatever people, how they use them, yeah. right? And they evolve. So if most people are using intersectionality, in a particular way, like if most people are spelling color without a U now, uh, if some like if my British grandmother says that's not the right way to spell it, like well, no, <laughs> like you don't get to say that. This is how people are. So, I mean, and I recognize there's a lot of problems associated with that, but is intersectionality what the sort of top-notch theory people say it is, or is it? how it's used both and um um some of the article hmm, there are two different ways i could respond here and one is um the analogy to 
real communism, real socialism, real whatever. It 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 doesn't work for intersectionality. Like these, uh, you know, in doing the air quote thing again, socialist or communist experiments in uh, China or the Soviet Union. Actual people actually died because of this. That they were profound in their and disastrous in their consequences in in many respects. Good things also happened, which is why it's more complicated than just communism good, communism bad. Um, With intersectionality is not an ideology that has the force of a government or a state behind it. It cannot, despite what people on Twitter say when they've had too much caffeine, it it is not going to force anybody in front of a star chamber. There are no gulags. Nobody is going to be you know, ducked in the witch pool or what have you. So the parallels with these other dangerous ideologies just fall down. You know, when... Um, yeah, when, no, I, yeah. I just, just to clarify, I didn't mean that there was um, that there was any kind of comparison yeah. in terms of their out- results. I was talking more just theoretically, what do words mean? Oh, okay, so yeah. So if, if most people have redefined a word, if they're using yeah. it... Like these, oh man, that's so sick. You know, these yeah, young people, yeah. right? Like so these young now, people, like yeah, yeah. yeah you know, <laughs> kids these days. So like, yeah. Uh, but if they're saying like, like that's so sick. Well, at a certain point, if yeah. that if that becomes the number one way in which people use that English word, yeah. And if people refer to um, being unwell as yeah. being ill, or yeah. being, And they stop using sick. Yeah. Well, at a certain point, sick as in that's awesome, that's yeah. amazing, that's cool. That's the primary number one in the dictionary meaning of it. Yeah. Right? So I meant more theoretically, like in right. terms of usage, right? Because yeah. it's one of the things I was saying, like that uh, bugs me with this this one very right wing guy that we have interactions with, like online. Is he very often he tries to win arguments not by making a good argument yeah. and 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 sort of marshalling evidence. He tries to win the argument by redefining terms. Yeah. And so he'll he'll use words in very very atypical ways. Yeah. as a way to sort of win the argument by which for me, I mean you probably remember this. Yeah. The, the classic example of this mode of 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 doing things would be Brian Maroney, right? Brian Maroney said, "I'm going to reduce unemployment by this much in the first year that I'm in office. Right. So he was elected. Well, as soon as he got in, he went to the office uh, that defines what how somebody's unemployed, mm-hmm. and he had them Changed redefined. The he redefined what unemployment was. Yeah. And he did that fourteen times while yeah. he was prime minister. So surprise, surprise, the unemployment rate kept going down. Yeah. Actually, the number of people working was not being fixed. Yeah. He was just he was solving a problem by redefining a word. Yeah. Right? So. That's more what I meant. Like, yeah. so if if somebody says, "Here's how intersectionality is being used um, in many many situations," yeah, and it seems to be causing harm, yeah, is you know, it, it seems to me like there's a number of ways to to respond to that. Um, you can say, "Well, is it really being used that way that yeah. much?" Uh, you can say, "Is it really causing harm?" Can you yeah. show me that? Uh, like, there's, but the it seems to me like the, the cheapest way to respond to it is just to say, well, that's not real. <laughs> like that, yeah. They're not, you know, they're not doing the real thing. Yeah. You know what yeah. I mean? That's what I mean. Yeah. I, I would never say the star chambers are like that. Yeah. yeah. No, no, no. <laughs> yeah. No. That's Jordan yeah. Peterson's territory. Yeah, it, well, yes, <laughs> that is exactly. Uh, yes, that's exactly what I was referring to. Um, yeah. Uh, so, hmm. 
one of the articles that I'm I make grad students read about um, about intersectionality, and I of course I can't remember the name of the author, but it begins with H. Um, talks about why this is a um, a theory, a concept, an idea that's useful, and one of the characteristics of a useful, powerful, vigorous idea or concept is that it's never fully closed. Like, okay, this is it. We have measured it and and you know pinned it on the wall, and that's it, and we're done. Um, and this author, who I it's probably good, I can't remember. Yeah, remember their name because I'm probably misrepresenting their argument completely. But this author <laughs> says that one of the well, Sebastian can find it for you if you want. He does <laughs> no, that. It's okay. So yeah, it's okay. Yeah. Um, one of um, the reasons why intersectionality is a strong concept, a strong word, a strong idea, is that it it is somewhat open ended and mutable. And some people may look at things that are going on under the you know under the sign of intersectionality and say, "Oh my God, that's a mess. That shouldn't be happening." Other people may look at the same situation and say, "Yeah, that's actually a good thing that that is going on there." Um, and the question of is this real intersectionality or not um, is almost, it's, it's like a nominal question. You know, what is, you know, is this name appropriate in this case or not? Um, getting a little tangled up here. Uh, I think what I'm trying to say is that I'm, I have, if someone asked me what is intersectionality, I would give them my like, you know, one sentence definition. But I see it as a live entity out there that's being deployed. It's been very powerful in shifting the way people think, the way they perceive the world around them. You know, people have these moments when they realize things and understand things differently. Through encountering intersectional ideas or practices or theories, and because it has that power and that dynamism, to me that's more important than whether we have a nailed down solid definition that everybody agrees on. Um, some, I've seen intersectional, because it, it is kind of a buzzword, getting taken up to mean really what I think of as like statistical diversity. You know, we have an intersectional approach to hiring, meaning we have like a United Colors of Benetton thing going on. And I'm thinking, no, not really. That doesn't <laughs> work for me. But maybe, it's, maybe it is doing some work that I'm not seeing. Um, or maybe the ways in which intersectionality are deployed that don't necessarily accord with my understanding of it are nonetheless productive of something good. So it's, you know, what does this word, this uh, somewhat amorphous, not entirely closed concept, what does it produce? What is it productive of in the social world? Is, is it productive of good in general? I think so. Um, can it be deployed? And this is a kind of, uh, you know, Calvinist original sin sort of argument. Can it be deployed by people who are jerks being jerks? Yes, it can. Um, yeah, so nominal questions about what what really is the definition of intersectionality are not of as much interest to me as the sociological question of what work is this doing in the world. Okay, and I, I think you would, I imagine you would agree that the, the end game, uh, because ultimately intersectionality is just a tool of analysis that is part of a larger vision of social justice, and it has an end game, right? So the first of all, it's it's linked to a vision of justice which 
uh, sort of John Rawlsian kind of way that that justice is is fairness, right? That justice is fairness, and it's it's this idea that we should try and have uh, as egalitarian a society as possible, right? And it presumes one of the unspoken assumptions, or sometimes spoken, usually unspoken, is that any inequality that we see in society is a function of some sort of discrimination or some sort of bias that there's there's something that's holding people back because if there was nothing holding people mm-hmm. back we would uh we would have like total like equality right that that or or, or roughly um, e- equality something like that right so that's i mean would you agree that that's kind of what the the larger kind of vision of justice that is you know the kind of the metaphysics uh, within which intersectionality is connected and then the the end game um the end game hmm i'm not so sure about the end game i mean perfect and absolute equality uh can't happen because there is always randomness you know we both walk on out onto the street and a bus hits me instead of you you know or um i get sick the day before I write an important exam and I fail and somebody else doesn't. Um, you know, in in quantitative social statistics, we and this is one thing that differentiates social sciences from natural sciences, is that our error terms are always there because there's always randomness. So the, the you know, the Arcadia of intersectionality is not necessarily a world where everybody is exactly the same and having the same experiences because random stuff will make some people's lives good and other people's lives not so good. Um, The kind of the horizon, the social justice horizon that I see for intersectionality would be a world in in which um, everyone can flourish uh, and they're flourishing is not impeded by um, category membership. You know, you're, you've been, uh, you're held back because you're female. You're held back because you're queer. You're held back because you're indigenous. Or, you know, you may be all three of those at once. So, I mean, I, I think partly because there is this human drive to organize our perceptions of ourselves and everything else into taxonomies and categories, I think that's, you know, that's a vanishing horizon. It's, it's never going to be there. But when I think about what do I want to see, I want to see human flourishing that is not constrained by, um, by the many things that constrain it now. Okay. Yeah, I know that that makes, um, what you're saying actually sounds very similar to the, uh, the logic behind the Finnish school system, right? Like right now they have the top school system in the world. They outperform Finnish students, outperform students from every other, everywhere else. And what's interesting is they don't have the strategy that places like Singapore and South Korea have where you just like work the kids until they're, you know, jumping off buildings or doing really well. Uh, and a crazy amount of homework and they're just working all the time and they're very stressed out and they have... Uh, Finland actually has like a shorter school day than we do they mm-hmm. have like a longer summer than we do mm-hmm. they start school later than we do they have massive amounts of paternity leave and maternity leave mm-hmm. but their strategy is for, similar to what you were talking about they they have a huge amount of time focused on students weak areas mm-hmm. so whereas we think of 
uh, streaming kids into kind of gifted and talented mm -hmm. and you know, remedial and like sort of gifting, you know, sorting them that way, right? And trying to figure out who the the smart ones are and giving them like extras so mm -hmm. they'll be masters of the universe later on. There what they do is they figure out what mm -hmm. you're not good at. Mm -hmm. And so if you're not, let's say if you're not very good at um, English mm -hmm. or German or you're not very good at math mm -hmm. or French, you could easily have four days a week where all you do is math right? and all your other stuff in the other day. So their, um, their goal is to try and get every student mm -hmm. up to a certain basic level. Right. right, right. And so what they, and and they don't actually spend a lot of time at all on right. like event. Like, so if you are, it's similar to boot camp. Or right. My, my son, my older son just right. finished like flight school this right. summer. And if you uh, complete all your competencies like really, really quickly and you're a very quick learner right. and you uh, do fantastically well, right. you can finish the entire course. I mean, of course, I think it was like, it ended up being mm -hmm. seven weeks. Um, if you finish everything mm -hmm. in two weeks because you're a genius, yeah. you don't go home. Mm -hmm. You don't get a gold star. You help everybody else for the next five weeks. Yeah. You're carrying around like you're on the every single day helping out other people to, to yeah. learn. And if they have to go, uh, it, as they did this year, if they have to extend the flight school for another half week yeah. because some people aren't done, yeah. then they extend it. Yeah. So it's the idea is everybody has to flourish. Everybody yeah. has to gain yeah. the, the competencies yeah. before we go on. Right. So I, I get that, that sort of approach to it. How do we get everybody to that place? But it seems to me that one of the unspoken, and this is a mm -hmm. larger issue, one of the unspoken assumptions mm -hmm. is that any inequality that mm -hmm. uh, that you find in the mm -hmm. world is a function of either some sort of discrimination and bias, mm -hmm. or perhaps we can add chaos into mm -hmm. that, as you said. <laughs> yeah. uh, but one thing that doesn't seem to be ever addressed is like, what if some, what if some of the inequality that we see in the world is a function of uh, just the fact that some people are like, faster runners than others mm -hmm. and have like more endurance and mm -hmm. or some people are just born with like for some reason through genetics like a higher IQ and mm -hmm. so they can excel uh, a great deal mm -hmm. you know regardless of what mm -hmm. right so what I mean what do you think what do you think about that I mean that's um, when I bring this up yeah. with sociologists they're usually like ah! Yeah. <laughs> like kryptonite. It's like yeah, uh, you mean that whether there is intrinsic differences mm -hmm. amongst people, and those may be non-randomly distributed within populations, and they could be distributed. To take a, an extreme example, if you take long-distance running, yeah, right? I think like yeah. the vast majority of long-distance runners are all of um, of East African descent. Is it West African? Yeah. Okay, West African and they genetically have certain markers that they they have absolutely no neanderthal genetic material <laughs> okay. which all yeah. all white people have some neanderthal yeah. genetic material and and i think it about half yeah. um asians have but africans are pure hu humans they're hmm. pure okay, homo sapiens sapiens to me uh, they don't have any yeah. homo sapien uh, neanderthalis mm -hmm. they're they're the pure humans so uh, anyway so anyway there's certain but the vast majority of mm -hmm. long distance runners yeah. are from that area. Right. So it's not discrimination against right. like uh, white guys of British. Right. As a, that's like 
holding me back from being a long distance. Right, right. right. So, I think there's certainly qualities like that. Um, yeah, and this, this does get into really tricky waters because you're talking about what's heritable and so what's yeah, quote-unquote exactly. hardwired um, and epigenetics and whatnot. Um, I, uh, and perhaps it's a bit idealistic of me, I'd make a distinction between things like with the long-distance runners, apparently a lot of it is about how well you can use oxygen. You know, if you living at a very high altitude, you become really efficient using oxygen. So when you're running at a lower altitude with more oxygen in the air, you know, you you, you do really well. Um, there are things like that. There's things like digesting lactose, you know, or dairy. Some people can and some people can't. And it, you know, can be traced back um, perhaps to the environments in which they've lived. Um, that's all sort of window dressing uh, the, the what i think of as as the sort of core human qualities intelligence creativity empathy i see no evidence that these are concentrated in certain uh social categories more so than others um, yeah, and it doesn't it just on the face of it it makes absolutely no sense yeah. what they would be because we were sort of middling creatures yeah. in every ecosystem we were in until very recently uh, and we were opportunistic omnivores that were very good at working together. So in absolutely every ecosystem on planet Earth that we went to, we would have had to be very creative, very intelligent, and very empathetic so that we could work with each other. So there's no ecosystem where that would have been less uh, required. So, no, that makes that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. And the other stuff that people argue about with, you know, what's heritable and what's inbred and what is there but you know environmental triggers will bring forth uh characteristics that would otherwise not be expressed i um yeah like i said it's it's window dressing in the essentials um i the some people are devoid of them and when those you know also those people cause problems um <laughs> but those human qualities are found everywhere in every population. Um, it's one reason why travel and getting out of your sort of social and geographical comfort zone is a really good thing to do. It's hard, it's not impossible, but it it's, makes it more difficult to sustain uh, racist ideas. For instance, if you have, uh, if you're a white person who has personal experience uh, in black majority societies it's just not you know you set up a good cognitive dissonance there um well you did a lot of your research in africa right yeah yeah, yeah. i've i've lived in africa for varying periods of time but uh yeah up to like three years or so um and it's not like this purified me and made me a wonderful non-racist human being <laughs> um, but it it is hard you know i hear people talk about uh Africans is, you know, a huge stereotype about the whole continent. And it is um, hard for me to not have arguments with those people, you know, because I have not just the theoretical knowledge that Africa is not one country, but I, I have sort of the personal experience that, um, yeah, that there's a lot going on. Um, I mean, I went across the world. You don't necessarily have to go across the world to move into the world of, in quotes, the other, you know, um, you can 
do so within your own neighborhood. Um, you can kind of attune yourself to not wanting to just stick in homophilous social networks and, and to extend yourself a little bit. Um, but I, I do believe that the more experience, uh, no matter what our what identity categories we claim or, or that are meaningful to us, the more experience we have with people that we do not share this with, um, the uh, more our stereotyped or our prejudiced beliefs will be challenged. I mean, there's a lot of forces shoring up prejudice and racism and homophobia and uh, other forms of normativities because they are functional for um, the op a lot of operations of power. You know, how, how I'm not going to go into a whole thing on, you know, the relationship between slavery and the United States as an economic power or male privilege and, and so on and so forth. So there's a lot of things which shore up these ideas and these ideologies, but there are also ways that we can take them down, you know, little bit by little bit, and that personal experience, personal exposure, thinking, um, coming to understand oneself as an intersectional subject, you know, it's not just something out there that, you know, African-American women working for General Motors experience coming to see oneself as an other to other people um, is a way of taking those ideologies down little bit by little bit. Yeah. Well, there's, um, I think it, the sociologist at, uh, what is it? It's on Long Island. I friend Katie teaches there. I can't believe I'm forgetting the name of it. Uh, Michael, is it? Oh, I'm totally blanking on his name, but he has, uh, he's written a lot on, sort of um, male male feminism mm -hmm. and on like privilege and things like that mm -hmm. and he's a lot of stuff but he has a, a TED talk which has like been watched mm -hmm. by like millions of people where he talks about like becoming a, a straight white male mm -hmm. and realizing he said you know because up until then I would look in the mirror and I would see I'm just an individual right. and I would see myself and then like I had this sort of uh, conversion on the road to Damascus where right. I realized that I was like a straight white male and started to, and he sees this um, as a, a really, really mm -hmm. important thing. And I know that a lot of, um, a lot of people I know who are really big fans of the concept of intersectionality, they mm -hmm. say, this is one of the good things about it, that if you're constantly mm -hmm. situating yourself um, in along the axes of like, you know, what kind of privilege you have and don't have and things like that. and other people that this is going to uh, this is going to be like a really good mm -hmm. thing mm -hmm. and the the question i guess i always have when i think about that is that um i to me it seems that the end game mm -hmm. should not be for everybody to be reduced mm -hmm. to it's like well you know everybody mm -hmm. is subject to these kinds of reductions mm -hmm. which dehumanize them to some extent right and well, now, mm -hmm. you know, welcome to my world. And mm -hmm. we're going to, you, yeah. you got, you have to do this too, yeah. right? Well, it seems to me that like a, a more sort of noble and, and beautiful mm -hmm. goal would be, why don't we try and transcend mm -hmm. all of this? And so everybody mm -hmm. sees them for themselves first and foremost as an individual. Mm. Like it, it's the classic, uh, what is it? There's like a Russian joke where they took the difference between like a Russian and a German. And then uh, during the Cold War, it was changed into like a, an American Russian joke. But it, it said that the difference was that uh, 
when it was turned into the Cold War mm -hmm. propaganda machine, they said that, well, an American farmer gets mm -hmm. up in the morning and he sees that uh, his neighbor has a brand new mm -hmm. cow. And so then when he's praying that night, saying his mm -hmm. prayers, he says, oh, God, oh, I yeah, pray that you would give me the strength to work really yeah. hard so that I can have a cow, too. And yeah. then the Russian farmer gets up and and sees the cow and is filled with envy and jealousy yeah. and says, I pray that my neighbor's cow would get sick and die so yeah. that we would both have no yeah. cow together. So I wonder, like, this whole thing of, like, well, I want everybody to feel reduced to their category and that this is like a good thing I, yeah. I i have a hard time seeing that as progress i have a hard time seeing it as reduction to be honest you could just drop that verb out um i could reframe what you said and i could say i have a hard time with the idea that we're reduced to just this hypothetical human with that's floating free of context and history and that by to some extent thinking categorically, thinking of intersectionality, we come into an uh, understanding of the richness of our subjectivity. You know, I'm not just a blob of homo sapiens, you know. <laughs> I understand myself, you know, I, I, I won't, well, I, you know, I've had road to Damascus experiences where I realized I was white and that had never sort of been a conscious thought that I possessed before. And, you know, more recently as... Um, uh, gender identity, cisgendered, trans, non-binary, you know, we come to under, I come to understand myself in a way that I didn't before. So rather than seeing it as a reduction to categories, you could see it as an opening up, a, a complexification, a great, a more sophisticated concept of one's own subjectivity, getting beyond a sort of infantile, I am I and I am me and I am myself, to a more complex and nuanced understanding of who we are and who other people are you know I, I i don't see it as being reduced yeah no i see your point so you're saying this is actually uh, can add to the richness of of your understanding of yourself and other people rather than kind of yeah uh, pigeonholing them i guess once again that that goes to the core issue which yeah. um this is i would say is a difference of opinion between yeah. you and and jonathan Hyde, perhaps yeah he's saying that intersectionality and this this mode of analysis yeah even in the hands of good people yeah. who are well-intentioned can do damage. And you're basically saying, if I understand you correctly, that uh, to the extent to which it does damage, it's because those people are, are jerks and they're doing what human jerks always do, which is using tools as uh, a way of dominance and a way to be kind of mean to other people, right? So I think, yeah, I think intersectionality does a lot more good work than bad. Um, like I said... Um, I've never met Jonathan Haidt. I'm not sure how we compare generationally, but i um, probably about the same age, I would get. Oh, no, he's probably older. Anyway, I, I come at it from a memory of, you know, what it was like when these things weren't talked about. And that was alienating. That was divisive. That was oppressive and, and it could be violent. Um, I see the drive to recognition of difference to inclusion of difference to um not just stop at saying oh well you know like the old hymn red and yellow black and white we are precious in his sight but to using these tools to try to change the inequalities that get mapped onto difference um i see that as as 
a movement in a positive direction and it makes some people uncomfortable and they feel awkward and well uh, that that's life you know <laughs> so um Jonathan Haidt apparently has had different experiences uh, in the academy and all I can say is is your mileage may vary um <laughs> I've this is what I've got, which I think is founded on a lot of experience, and, and he's got a lot of different experience. Yeah. Well, I mean, his, his take is that, and he, he sort of ventures into evolutionary psychology, which is uh, you know, dangerous waters, but he, he says we, for the vast majority of our history as a species, mm-hmm. you know, for, we've been around for about 200,000 years, they, they keep upping the number. Right. But, but so for the vast majority of that time, we lived in small groups mm-hmm. and so tribalism mm-hmm. is very very hardwired in us right right so we, we have a natural tendency to be extremely tribal mm-hmm. and so he says like part of what the civilization process mm-hmm. is whether and there's various roads mm-hmm. to civilization but the civilization process usually tries to increase our good qualities mm-hmm. increase our, our capacities for like working with people and empathy and mm-hmm. stuff like that and to de- decrease mm-hmm. you know what uh, Stephen Pinker calls the the demons right. of our nature and increase right. the better angels of right. our nature and so he says tribalism mm-hmm. is one of the like uh, cruelty yeah. um, violence selfishness mm-hmm. like it's one of those things that's mm-hmm. very very hardwired um, and so he says, like, if you look that all mass societies since the agricultural revolution mm-hmm. have actively, actively tried to suppress mm-hmm. tribalism. So whether it, you know, he gives like lots and lots of examples from many different, mm-hmm. I mean, a classic one in, in sort of Judeo-Christian society would be uh, when St. Paul says, uh, you know, in there's Christ no, Jesus, there is no neither Jew yeah. or Greek, there's mm-hmm. male or female, slave or free. We mm-hmm. are all one in Christ mm-hmm. Jesus. Mm-hmm. Right. And actually, Paul was there mm-hmm. just sort of grafting onto this new mm-hmm. movement some ideas that were extremely common in the Roman Empire at the mm-hmm. time, which was Epicureanism and right. Stoicism. And Epicurean communities and Stoic communities, if you walked into mm-hmm. Epictetus's like, school mm-hmm. to learn or Epicurus's class if and this is you know mm-hmm. in an incredibly unequal society yeah. like you know that would make Saudi Arabia look yeah. progressive they had slaves they yeah. had uh, but when you walked into mm-hmm. Epicurus's class you went through a force field as mm-hmm. it were and in that class mm-hmm. you absolutely had to treat everybody mm-hmm. with perfect respect right so if literally a slave could walk in right. with his master and the master would have to right. treat him with perfect, perfect while they're in that school. Right. Men and women. Right. I mean, the, the person who took over Epicurus's school right. after he died was a former uh, sex worker. Yeah. Like street prostitute. Yeah. Who, like, who became an Epicurean and yeah. ended up taking over the community. Yeah. So this kind of radical egalitarianism, mm-hmm. um, he, he says, and he's not the only one who said this, mm-hmm. they're all attempts to drastically Push down on our natural tendency towards tribalism. Right. So Jonathan Haidt's uh, his point is that intersectionality mm-hmm. and constantly emphasizing mm-hmm. difference in the classroom, although it's very very well intentioned, mm-hmm. it has the unintended consequence of waking the sleeping giant of tribalism in us. Mm-hmm. It and this roaring demon just comes up like <laughs> right away, and it comes so naturally Good to Lord. us 
it comes so naturally to us that we just get into character immediately. Does he actually and, say Roaring Demon? Um, no. Okay. Uh, <laughs> adding a little color. Okay. <laughs> so, yeah. uh, since we're doing all this, you know, Pauline like sort right. of imagery, but uh, throw some Ephesians in there. But mm-hmm. th- like it's uh, that we have this really natural mm-hmm. tendency towards it. So in the same way that we have a natural tendency towards being selfish, mm-hmm. and so you constantly have to tell kids to to share. Right. Right. We have a natural tendency towards being violent. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's uh, Tremblay at, at University of Montreal who's done like mm-hmm. all sorts of amazing work on violence, and he's mm-hmm. shown definitively that the most violent humans mm-hmm. of all are toddlers. Yeah. Toddlers yeah. are incredibly violent. And yeah. so he's basically... Um, I mean, he's not the only one, but yeah. they have completely r- done away with this Rousseauian right. idea that we're born angels and we're corrupted by right. socialization. He's right. like, actually, we start off kind of shitty yeah. and like pretty violent and selfish and mean. Yeah. And we're socialized yeah. to be to share and to be nice and to be decent. Yeah. Right. So his point is that w- if you emphasize difference a great deal, yeah. you wake the sort of the demon of tribalism in people i would say the demon of tribalism has not been asleep maybe to jonathan (laughs) height well it's not as though there's a a peaceful serene social world and then some troublemaking feminist comes along and says intersectionality and you know the the demon's awake um at the risk of sounding reductive Misogyny is a thing, you know, racism is a thing, homophobia, bigotry is a thing. Those demons are there and they're awake. Um, Some people see them very clearly. Other people are like, demons, what demons? Everything's, you know, (laughs) fine. I'm all right, you know, I've got no problems. Um, So I I think that there's a, I would take issue with that premise. I think intersectionality... um, as a way of understanding the world and a way of understanding how things are the way they are, denaturalizing the world, is um, ideally it's a way of putting those demons back down a little bit. But there was, there's no Arcadia from which we are being woken by these divisive queer people and people of color and women and whatnot who are making us uncomfortably conscious of our tribes um that that is a very naive uh view of the social world that i'm aware of you know it it, it's there it's going on um it's not something which is being brought into being um because someone said well you know i don't know this is my pronoun you know yeah yeah. uh yeah uh, it's funny the most the most innocent and kind of shocking example of this I have encountered in uh, probably in my 40s yeah uh, was just the other day yeah I was at this dinner party and there's a guy there uh, got into a very interesting conversation with him yeah and he's from Moscow very yeah. recently here and like um, Annalisa and I have been yeah. on this Russia kick yeah. this summer we've read like 10 books yeah. on Putin's Russia trying to figure it yeah. all out and so I, I was asking him questions yeah. and stuff like that. And I said, well, you know, what about this? And what about that? I was trying to be gentle about yeah. it, but I wanted to understand yeah. some stuff. And he said, uh, oh, this this is all exaggeration. He goes, yeah. and he said to me, like, just innocently, I thought he was being ironic at first, but he said, well, you know, if you're a white Christian man, not gay, yeah. uh, it's fine. Yeah. <laughs> it's, like, it's, it's fine in Putin's yeah. Russia. It's not so bad. And he just... 
and I thought he was joking at yeah. first, but then I realized he was not joking yeah. at all. And I said, but um, anywhere, unless you're in a yeah. really intense totalitarian society, like yeah. let's say Stalin's Soviet Union, yeah. um, life anywhere is always fine for the majority yeah. group that's in power. Yeah. Like, so that that doesn't mean the fact that you're saying that doesn't mean yeah. anything. You may not recognize, yeah. but you know, like uh, I right now, I would not yeah. want to to be living there in a place where you know, if my one of my kids was was gay, it wouldn't be a very nice place to live. Yeah, in Putin's Russia, where yeah. it's like rampant like yeah. homophobia and terrible like yeah. laws and things like that. So yeah, it seems to be an open society is always measured. And has always been measured by how it treats its minority groups. Yeah. That's like the litmus test of an open society is how they treat. The majority is always doing fine. Yeah. Unless you're in a really atypical, horrible situation. Yeah. Or unless you're really, really insightful and you can step outside yourself and see. Um, yeah. But how many people have that level of insight? Um, you know, not that many. <laughs> So what it's one other question I absolutely sure. wanted to okay. ask you. I think I think I've, Ooh, and then I'm going to have to. Go. Yeah, the is what do you think? I mean, you've been in the academy for a, a long time. You've seen a lot of changes. Where do you where do you think feminism is at the moment? <laughs> like from when you first sort of kind of became kind of politically aware and, and socially aware as a as a human, which for most humans happens, I guess, somewhere between 12 and 15, yeah. I guess. I mean, so uh, uh, so from then to now, where do you think uh, feminism has, has gone and where do you think it's going? Oh, wow, that's a huge question. Um, I, I see a couple of things and I'm not sure if it's like directional or if it's just like s sort of swinging around or spiraling. Um, the question of essentialism never goes away. You know, whether uh, women are intrin... There is a group called women, which is bounded and defined, and it is intrinsically different from the group called men, which is also bounded and defined. I mean, for a long time, that was how I understood things. I now do not understand things that way. Um, partly through the, the, like the, the sort of radical disruption of queer and trans people um, who problematized gender categories and sex categories. Um, so, you know, we, you know, for me, that was a big revelation. We can't take, kind of assume that there are these two groups and they're very different and, um, and it's, they're not being treated fairly. Um, but at the same time, there seems to be a lot of evidence suggesting that it's it's not all pure social construction. It's not like all human beings are blank slates and gender gets written onto them by, you know, their parents or their caregivers of the world around them. So I think there's tension um, around what is intrinsic and essential to gender and what is indeed socially constructed and I don't know what the answer is but it's certainly less clear than it was at least for me you know 15 years ago or something um, so yeah there's the sort of essentialism constructionism going on there um, the it was it's back to intersectionality the inflection of gender by um, 
other forms of social identity. You know, and this has been like at the heart of struggles within feminism since forever. Um, what can we say about women as a group that isn't erasing or eliding or ignoring the experiences of a big chunk of people who understand themselves as women? When can that category be deployed effectively? And when is it being deployed uh, badly? And um, I think understanding the multiple ways in which this thing called women, uh, this identity called women uh, is inflected is uh, becoming more and more sophisticated um, as we go on. Um, I, I see sort of worrying tendencies to try to, to do sort of like policing the borders of the categories of women. And this comes up with trans activism a lot. You know, you are a woman if these conditions are satisfied, you are not a woman if they are not. Um, and that concerns me. If feminism and feminists are spending more time policing the borders of our categories than considering and trying to change gender relations, that the dynamics, the you know distribution of resources and power, then we're losing our political edge. So um, I have a you know pretty kind of big tent approach to you know who who is a woman who is in this gender category with me, and it worries me when I see too much sort of attempting to you know close it down around the edges. Uh, yeah, the, yeah. The, that that whole move, you know, because I, I have uh, sort of trans students and yeah. trans friends and stuff like that, and that that whole move always strikes me as. I don't think the people who do that realize how similar they are to right-wing conservatives who are freaking out about bathrooms yeah. and things like that. Because in, in both of the instances, yeah. you're sort of making a test, yeah. which no reasonable person would ever do. Yeah, Like, I relate to somebody because they present as a woman yeah. or a man and I relate to them that way yeah. I'm not asking them to take their clothes off and prove it yeah like, so like all of these things are creating yeah tests that no reasonable person yeah. would ever perform yeah like so yeah. why don't you just go with how somebody is yeah sort of identifying and like yeah well and then you know feminist theorists have pointed out that you know with gender it's like we assume we know what's hidden under clothes or under whatever, you know, and, and it's that thing that we assume but we don't see, we take as sort of the truth. And if you can't assume or if you assume something that is different from what is actually there, then, it, you know, it's, it's a big cognitive problem um, or it's potentially a big cognitive problem. But the reason why it's a cognitive problem is because our ideas of gender have been based on there is this reality which is hidden and when someone comes along and that doesn't apply then it can get people in a bit of a of a, a fluster um i think that the challenges that trans activists and theorists have presented for feminism has have been like the most interesting and the most important things coming along um because and I, you know i know it's jargon here but because they do destabilize this binary and so much is predicated on the binary and I 
hate to bring up Jordan Peterson, but here I go anyway. <laughs> he he seems to like be very interested in that, very invested in men are like this, women are like that. And you can't say that unless you've got binary opposed categories. And the existence of trans lives says, well, no, empirically that doesn't work. Um, so that's why the, it's a really important challenge to feminist theorizing and activism, but also just to ontologies of the world. And you, you get like freakouts like we have seen um, when that is destabilized. So to me, that's, yeah, that there's a lot of interesting stuff going on within feminism, and that's kind of where I am with it. Okay. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Yeah. And it was wonderful talking with yeah, you. Yeah, it was my pleasure. And meeting you finally yeah. in person after yeah. knowing you <laughs> online for, what, a decade now? Something <laughs> no, like that? no, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah. All right. Well, thank you very much. Thank you.